This is Teach for All Talks, a conversation with global education thought leaders. Today's episode features Wendy Kopp in conversation with Elizabeth Green. Green is CEO and Editor-in-Chief of Chalkbeat.org and author of the New York Times best-selling book, Building a Better Teacher. It's exciting to be here today for another Teach for All talk. Um, for anyone who's new to these, um, we invite thought leaders in education and social innovation and other related what realms just to help advance our thinking as a community. Um, and a few things led me, a couple of main things, to think that we should have such a talk with Elizabeth. Um, one is because of her new best-selling book um, uh, called Building, Better, Building a Better Teacher, um, which has done a lot to advance my own understanding and I think would be an amazing thing to discuss uh, and, and to help the Teach for All Network understand. Um, and secondly is that she's covered the U.S. kind of ed reform um, I don't know, for, for at least a decade as a reporter for the New York Times and such, and now as, as the CEO and editor-in-chief of Chalkbeat. Um, and so I thought it would be good because the rest of the world actually looks at the vitriolic and polarized you know, debate that goes on here in the U.S. and doesn't have full perspective on it, and I thought it would be good to see if you can help us and them understand what's actually going on. So... Um, so let's just dive in. And, yeah, and cool. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Great. Um, and, and folks can ask questions on Twitter. I'm at Wendy Kopp. We're using the TFall Talks hashtag. And you can also email MitchellCraft at teachforall.org. OK, so um, let's talk about the central thesis of your book, Building Better Teachers. Um, can you say, I mean, help us understand your central theory about what we should be doing in teacher development. Yeah, um, so I mean, I don't think it's a surprise to, to you or anyone in the Teach for All network that teaching requires specialized knowledge and skill. But that is kind of a radical idea um, in this country in particular. And I think around the world, um, the assumption is that we can just let people figure out how to teach on their own. So once you get past that, how do we develop teachers? And um, I think one of the key ingredients that we see in places across in this country and globally where teachers do have the chance to develop that skill is a solid infrastructure, which means a system to help them develop that specific kind of knowledge and skill. Um, and the ingredients include uh, material and technical resources so that they do not have to invent lesson plans on their own. It includes um, teacher induction programs and training programs so that before they enter the classroom they have experiences practicing um, high leverage instructional practices. Um, I think uh, one of the key uh, elements of what, what I see is um, the teaching that is engendered by these systems is that it is really deeply steeped in, a, in the text of a discipline, whether that discipline is math or English or history, or whether it's uh, how people should interpersonally connect with one another, sort of a, a moral character text that helps them um, work with students to develop psychological social skills. Um, Let's actually do back up a bit. I mean, we had a dilemma on where to start here, but because I, I think that across the Teach for All network, there is a real 
I mean, everyone's obsessed with the idea that, I mean, we start with a group of people and we need to develop them. I mean, we, we all know we have to invest an immense amount in developing the mindsets, the skills, the knowledge that a great teacher needs. Um, but I think it might be good to understand more about your perspective on what, what that looks like, like meaning like, you know, what is the knowledge base right. behind great teaching that you've come to believe is really important? Yeah, so um, I think some of the most specific research is in math education. So what does it mean to teach math well? One of the key ingredients, and I think this has analogs for any other subject, a key lesson is that you cannot just know the right answers to the questions that students have to answer. You can't just be a subject matter expert. That's not enough. You have to actually understand how students get wrong answers, like where their thinking goes wrong. Um, and that's something that even the best content experts do not know. It's a specialized set of knowledge. So in math, that might mean um, being able to reverse engineer why a student would think that 49 times five is 405 rather than 245. A teacher has to be able to, to diagnose that that has to do with a misunderstanding of place value. Yeah. And in, you know, what does that look like in a, the context of social emotional skills? Um, a teacher has to be able to elicit uh, students to have make mistakes interpersonally the same way the teacher has to elicit mistakes in the math context. And these can actually be really aligned. So that that is what I mean by uh, teaching skill and knowledge being very tied to subject matter. So one thing that has been, I guess, helpful for me to sort through is I, I think when we think about teacher development in the Teach for All context, I mean, we're thinking in the context where we're placing teachers within schools and systems that do not have the kind of, typically, I mean, there are always exceptions to this, but the kind of culture, clear mission, teacher development systems that, you know, that we would all think would be important, right? And so our teachers, we're asking them to sort of create, to, to compensate for that in their classrooms, to sort of create all of that, to figure out, okay, what is, what are the ultimate outcomes we're working toward? Because they're typically placed in schools that may not have a clear articulation of that. What is the culture we want to build? Because again, they're in schools that may not have the kind of culture that, that we all think is important. Um, you know, and, and so it leads us to spend a lot of energy working on the mindsets, the overall orientation of these teachers, et cetera, before we can even get to the content in some cases. And I think mm -hmm. in reading your book, it's it's super focused as as your answer just now was on on sort of the next level in a way around like the content, the nature of the engagement. So I think I've I've come to think that the real value of this may be may I mean it has implications for the work of the Teach for All partners themselves, but I think it has bigger implications for the work of the alumni of Teach for All who are out there trying to figure out how do we reshape our systems so that at a systemic level we're developing the teachers we need. So I kind of want to just, you know, I don't know, make that distinction and kind of spend our time thinking about like so 
you know, given what you have come to believe like the greatest teachers do within these systems where the orientation is clear and the culture is strong, so then how do we, and, and you started answering this earlier, but how do we develop those teachers? So can you give us an example of where, just to try to bring this to life, mm-hmm. um, of, of the kind of teacher development, like when you think about what it would optimally take or look like, is mm-hmm. it possible to give an example of that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you think about, if you start with uh, the example I gave of a teacher can't just know that 49 times five is 245, but she must know that uh, why a student would think it's 405. And then after that, she needs to be able to say, what would I do with a group of students to address that underlying misunderstanding? First diagnose that the problem is place value, know what place value means, and then secondarily have access to a way to develop an activity that helps students um, correct their misunderstanding of place value. So uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is of um, a language school in Italy for adults. Um, This is different than a lot of the context that we're working in, but it's a school and it has the same key ingredients. It has teachers, students, and things that we've decided these students need to learn, that the teachers need to work with the students to help them learn. Um, So how can they, how how does the school develop teachers to do that? Well, first of all, uh, teachers start by going to a training program that is entirely focused on the skills and knowledge that they'll need and mindsets that they'll need to be able to solve the Italian language equivalent of the 49 times five problem. So for example, what is an activity you can do with students who are learning a new language to help them understand subject verb agreement? What does the basic structure of these activities look like? Now let's rehearse trying out these activities together. Um, That way when a teacher enters the classroom, they have access to um, a a set of, let's say five, not like a hundred, but just five core activities that they can do with students on different subject matter. And they've studied how students learn, how how students are going to miss the, the mistakes that they're likely to make and what we can do to correct it. Then when they get to the school, um, they don't have to invent um, everything from scratch from there. Just like they were supported in the training program, they're supported at the school. So for example, their teachers at this school share a lesson bank of lessons so they can draw on examples that their peers have made and they continuously update this. Um, that is a, a basic ingredient of of all of the best uh, strong school systems around the world. Um, So before they enter, very specific rehearsals of practices, things they can do, activities with students, and uh, learning the knowledge they need about student errors, how they're likely to occur. Particular grade level and subject area. Very important for their, and their particular context. Mm -hmm. So this school is like teaching non-Italian natives uh, who are living in Italy as adults. That's a certain context. Um, And I think context is absolutely a key ingredient of understanding how students learn. Yeah. Now, I mean, again, you see why I'm making the distinction between our context and, and like thinking about, okay, if we could just reshape the whole system, what would we do? Because we are so far from, I mean, we don't even know often what subject and grade level our teachers are going to teach yes. until a week before they start. So yes. um, what, and, and I, I guess I think back to this visit that we took to Shanghai. We 
took the CEOs of the Teach for All Network to Shanghai, and we spent some time trying to understand how they have transformed their system over the last 20 years into one that has the highest levels of educational excellence and equity in the world, at least based on PISA. And probably the most central thing that we took away from that discussion it was just so striking to hear the gentleman, Minxuan Zhang, who has been sort of central to all of this for the last 20 years, say, essentially, we don't believe in the extraordinary person theory of teacher development. Yeah. We believe it's our responsibility mm -hmm. to take ordinary people and turn them into extraordinary teachers. And what they've done is they've basically freed up 30% of the teacher's time during the school day. And they do all sorts of things from, you know, coaching of teachers to you know, uh, content area groups and grade level collaborative groups so that teachers are all working together to plan their lessons and, and all of this. Um, and seeing that was was so interesting to me in part because I feel like in the most successful schools I've seen, that's actually what they're doing. Um, and yet we're so far from that. So I guess I, I, I guess the question is, what do you think it would actually take? Like how much pre-service development how, what should a system, how much do we need to allocate to teacher development? I mean, I don't know, any mm -hmm, frameworks mm -hmm. around that? Yeah, I mean, uh, well, first of all, I do think it's important to make the distinction between the end goal and where we are now, because just like with any teacher facing a classroom, like you have to have the, you have to backwards plan and say, where do we need to get to? Um, I think that time is an incredibly important ingredient. And we see like in the US, um, the average teacher spends a thousand hours um, in front of students. And in countries that outperform us, it's almost half of that. It's under 600 hours on average in Japan and Finland. And I expect Shanghai must be the same 20 years later. Um, so that means that they, they have that 400 plus hours that are dedicated to teacher development. Now, resource-wise, we already invest billions and billions of dollars in the United States into teacher development of all kinds, into pre-service teacher education and into ongoing professional development. Um, so I don't think we necessarily need to allocate more resources, but we do need to make them more effective. Um, and so I think, you know, when I think about how do we get there, um, I think there's uh, two core theories of change and a million variations in between, but the two key ideas that I see are one, um, let's work within the system, um, and two, let's blow up the system. And I think one of the reasons for that, which we can explore, is um, the, the reasons for that debate are that one of the sources of our challenge to build a strong, coherent infrastructure that has a um, directed theory of teacher development in this country, you know, to allocate those resources in an effective way, is that we, our governance, the way we govern U.S. education is so fractured that we have no end goal in mind. And so that leads to a teacher at the, at, at the center of 17 messages about what she should be doing, um, all of which come with their uh, investments, but um, which are usually conflicting. The federal government is sending one message, the state is sending another, the district is sending another, the principal may be sending a different message, the teacher across the hall, and that's not even to talk about the curriculum vendors, the test makers. Um, so none of these are aligned. In countries that are doing a better job and in systems within our country that are doing a better job, there is a clear end goal for what students should learn. And that allows 
us to develop a clear end goal of what teachers need to learn how to do. And then we can figure out how to support them. So the question is, how do we get a more coherent governance in US education? And you can see why some folks would say, we absolutely have to act outside of the existing system and create new governance structures that do not obey to this fractured mess that has put us in the trouble we're in. And just to stop there for a second, I mean, this may be more relevant to the US, but it's kind of relevant to everyone because the question of governance is, is relevant. But do you think the common core would be a big step in the right direction? Yes, I think that um, I think that if you look at other countries that have managed, even within a decentralized system, to have um, strength and coherence, like Canada is an example. It's not a strong um, federalized education system, but still within each um, region there are uh, strong goals. That all comes back to deciding on what students should know and be able to do. What are our goals? And that, by the way, in the best education systems includes not just know and able to do on subjects, but know and able to do how should they be as people, what kind of uh, skills do they need physical education-wise, what kind of skills do they need psychologically to be a citizen in our world. So yes, the Common Core is a first start at creating that coherence in, in our decentralized country. And do you think that the Common Core standards are aligned to the kind, like the substantive um, like the nature of good teaching that you were describing before, like you feel like that actually does give us the foundation. Like if we could then develop the teacher development systems in relation to the common core, we would get where you think we need to go. Yeah, and I think, I do, I do. And I think the question has to go back to what do we want students to learn? Because teaching will vary based on what we want the learning goals to be. So. Personally, the learning goals that I endorse are uh, for students to be able to be strong, independent thinkers, because I think that's important for them as citizens, and that's going to be important for them to, in many cases where it's not needed in our country, unlock themselves and transform their their communities and their family outcomes. Um, and if that's the learning goal, that is embedded in the Common Core, I think. And and. I know we're getting a little wonky here around like the specifics of all this, but the only way to That's, really get sorry. It, yeah, no, I mean, I, I want to ask you yet another specific question on this. So like, do you, is the framework that you th explained earlier around like the crux of it is like, so you figure out what you want students to know, mm -hmm. whether it's a, academics or a socio-emotional goal or whatever. And then the crux of good teaching is is both helping people and helping the kids understand what they need to know and understanding where they might get it wrong so that you can tackle them all of the possible misconceptions is that like pretty much or yes. please correct like i want to make sure we have a holistic understanding of what you think teachers actually should be doing yes yes um Okay, so if the learning goal is to have students be um, sense makers, basically, is the way that a lot of educators talk about it. And I think that's aligned with um, social justice goals. I think that's aligned with citizenship goals. Um, we want students to be able to draw their own conclusions and to understand that the source of knowledge is not an authority figure, but rather um, certain uh, ways of working out answers, right? Like either in democracy, we work out answers through a deliberative process. In math, we work out answers through, um, you know, 
argumentation and looking at evidence. Um, in science, the same. In history, we, we look at the source. That's the key goal, I think, of that is that most of us would endorse and then that requires teachers to do a kind of instruction that is going to be diagnostic that is not going to uh, that is going to look at students as a thinker treat them as a thinker and take their questions seriously and when the key reason that teachers need to be able to diagnose student error and encourage student error is so that students have a space in which they learn to be thinkers themselves, to be independent. And this applies just as much, again, to say it again, to academics as it does to social-emotional. Um, the, the most effective uh, instructional interventions to help students um, with discipline and social-emotional challenges is sometimes called social problem-solving. It means treating the classroom um, and interpersonal challenges that emerge as themselves problems that people learn, the students themselves learn how to solve, rather than entirely uh, leaving all of the work to preordained rules that will decide the outcome. Is that clear? Would you say that it also relates, so what folks call 21st century skills, so let's say collaboration or creativity or whatever people decide or the goals we want to pursue, do you think it would apply equally to those? Absolutely, yes, because um, collaboration, problem solving are the ways to get to the end. They're the strategies that get to the goal. They're um, the way that uh, students will make sense of math, science, history, um, a social challenge. That's interesting because you, you sort of twisted that a bit and said, well, but collaboration is a way to get to the content and critical thinking goals. I, I'm actually, I have no firm perspective on this personally, but I'm just that's, curious. No, it's interesting that you point that out. Some people would be It's a like, means and an end. Okay, okay. But so actually say more about what brought you to this. I actually think going back and understanding I mean, yeah, and, and I'm curious, this being your overall right. frame on this. Um, well, I'm a journalist, and as a journalist, as you explained, I've been really immersed in the American conversation about how to improve education. And um, five or six years ago, that conversation became obsessed with teacher quality. And I know from my limited international travel that that has spread globally. So we're all thinking, what does this variable called teacher quality mean? And I was given an assignment to write a story about that variable of teacher quality. So in my reporting, I talked to researchers and practitioners, um, and I realized that, first of all, my own assumptions about education were flawed because of my misunderstanding of teaching. Um, and then I also realized that that same misunderstanding was infecting our national debate. So we had pursued a, a course that said teacher quality is an important ingredient. The way to solve for that, to improve it, is accountability. But that idea that, okay, we need to hold teachers accountable for their results, um, we need to identify the strong performers, identify the weak performers, reward the strong, remove the weak. Um, that doesn't actually m work 
for the kind of skill that teaching is, the kind of endeavor that teaching is. It's not going to be solved by accountability. So I got really interested in this disconnect between the policy debate and the reality that researchers and practitioners told me. No, it's not about accountability. It's about development. And development includes measures of accountability, but it is not limited to that. It means actually helping people learn. Would you say that you, I want to clarify that. I think, I think you mean, but tell me, I mean, that basically we're not going to improve teacher quality unless we invest a ton in their development. But would you say we shouldn't have teacher accountability systems? No, no, because any, if, if you think, you know, the difference is teachers are like learners, just like anyone else. And if you start from that starting point, then you cannot conclude that the best way to have them, help them improve is simply and only to assess them. Yeah. You have to do the other pieces too. But it would be equally absurd not to have standards yeah. and have consequences for yeah. not meeting the standards. Um. I mean, there's so much to be said on all this, so much more to be said. But I, I remember this article that you wrote about this gentleman from Japan and, you know, his, you know, his becoming this incredible math teacher, actually based on something he learned from the U.S. And then he came to the U.S. and started visiting schools. And he was like, this can't be the U.S. <laughs> um, and... I wonder, I guess, how much you feel like these other countries have actually embraced this notion of what great teaching is, like that, that you had kind of articulated mm -hmm. earlier, and why it seems to be taking off in these other countries and not say, you know, what differentiates the countries that are making it happen and those that aren't? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in the case of Japan, um, the ideas about teacher development that have a long historical record in our country right alongside flawed ideas about the teacher as a you know more of a widget um, did take off when Japan decided to modernize its education system and um, the I think the country as a whole was ready for that approach so when we talk about the difference between what do we do today versus what is the end goal of the system we'd like to see in any country Japan had the makings of the right system they had ingredients already in place that made that likely so one of those was a long culture and history of uh, lesson study, which is the American or the English translation for a practice that means um, teachers looking at each other's lessons and studying them. Um, and not just the teacher, but studying what students are doing in a class um, and how everyone is engaging. And this uh, practice had a long history in Japan that um, the ideas that a specific, more specific ideas about what great instruction could look like were able to take off because teachers were already, uh, had a learning community together. Another key ingredient in Japan was having a very clear um, idea about what students should know and be able to do. And every 10 years, the Japanese government uh, creates this course of study. Teachers are involved in revising it. It's a very careful and deliberate process over 10 years, and they make small changes every 10 years. But this allows for all the different pieces of the country to be come in alignment. So the assessment is in alignment with these course of study. The curriculum is in alignment. 
The textbooks are authored by the best teachers in the country to match this course of study. And as a result, uh, also, the education ministry can create additional materials that support the course of study, like learning progression documents about how students should learn. Each teacher should not have to invent that on her own or his own. But in, in many countries, that's the case. In Japan, it's not because of this very coherent, clear um, stake in the ground about what the goal is. So interesting. I mean, sorry to come back to this yet again, but isn't this just the best argument in the US for the Common Core? Yes, <laughs> yes. And okay. this is why I think that's the source of the Common Core. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so let's shift a bit to this, the US ed reform question. So how, how did it get so polarized? Because it wasn't always so polarized. We forget, but it really wasn't so polarized 10 years ago. Hi, we, um, I, I, uh, Dana Goldstein, uh, who's an, a fellow journalist who writes about education, published a book called The Teacher Wars, where she makes the argument that we actually have been always polarized in education. So it's interesting to hear, to hear you say that. What, what's the, what do you see as the trajectory of polarization? Well, that's my question for you. Um, I mean, even just, I'll have to give that more, well, I, I have, yeah, no, I, I do think that we, it's not that there weren't debates, but um, I think we got to a different level of yeah. polarization, and I think, um, actually, I think the media had something to do with it, but only because, I mean, they had a lot of fodder to work with. I mean, I mm -hmm. think, you know, if you put Michelle Rhee on a cover of Time Magazine with a broom implying that she wants to sweep away all the bad teachers, um, if you're a hardworking teacher, that's not gonna go over so well. I watched the Waiting for Superman movie and thought I was gonna die. I, I couldn't even sit there, because I was just thinking if I was a veteran teacher in an urban community, I would be livid. Mm -hmm. Because it's such a stereotype and you know, it just so oversimplified the, the issues. So, I do think that those there were moments that yeah, sent escalated. the blood pressure way up for understandable reasons. Yeah, I think that's. I think I would agree that teachers feel increasingly under assault, and the the polarized debate around teachers absolutely is at a historic point. Um, I, I brought up Dana Goldstein's book because one of the things that struck me in the course of my reporting, my grandmother. Um, who's now 95 or something, was a public school teacher. And every time she would talk to me, she she's, has dementia, so she can't really remember each time I talk to her, I have to remind her what I'm up to. And I, when I would tell her, and another thing about having dementia is that she, her memory sort of you know, begins in 1935 and ends, right? So she really vividly remembers her teaching years, but not much after. Um, so when I would tell her every time what I was working on, oh yeah, I'm writing a book about teaching, she would have the same reaction every time, which was um, either she would laugh at me in a really, in like a cackling way, and she would say, what do you know about teaching? Or she would say, what are you going to say about us? In this really skeptical, um, almost hostile way, where she has was so used to, from 1935, 40, um, 45, 
being under assault as a teacher about her profession. So I do think there's a deep history of uh, teachers not being understood. And that's the way I came to see it is that, um, and, and I think that's escalated in the last 10 years. And that's the reason that I took on this project. There's a huge divide between the way the, the policy world um, primarily talks about teaching and the way it's experienced. And that comes out in Waiting for Superman, that comes out in the Time Magazine cover story. And, you know, as a journalist, I would say it's equally as much the people were quoting as it was us for not interrogating the assumptions. Interesting. And just to help people understand, I mean, I'm curious what kind of axes you would say. I mean, if, if, you, if you, from your kind of broader reporting, looked at, like, what are the most central questions or issues that, you know, are the tension points and, and the big maybe the big things we need to sort through if we're gonna ultimately make progress. I mean, how do you view that? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so one, one of the things I found really interesting in traveling around the world a little bit for my reporting is different countries would say, uh, okay, we see the teacher evaluation. It's really important. We need a better teacher evaluation system as the, as the single silver bullet intervention to improve teaching. And so they would say, what are the best practices in teacher evaluation? That was their question. I think that's the wrong question. Um, I think the better question is, what is the infrastructure that we need to support learning across the continuum and throughout the, pro the profession? Because we cannot just think an evaluation system is enough. We cannot just think that a teacher ed system is enough, a curriculum is enough. They all have to come together so that when you enter you know, that Italian language school, you know what the activity is to do subject-verb agreement, you know what the problem and understanding is going to be, you know all of the pieces. So this seems like a huge fundamental big paradigm shift that needs to be <laughs> made. I mean, first of all, do you think we're making any progress towards making that paradigm shift in the US? Um, I do, I actually do. I think, you know, one story of the last 10 years is a story of uh, retrenchment by teachers, polarization, um, deep skepticism, and if we continue too much down the um, accountability uh, only trajectory, I think there's real dangers that we have so much ground to make up for that we will have diminished the progress. On the other hand, I think there's a different story to tell about the last 25 years that is a community of people and practitioners and increasingly people with power who uh, to, to make decisions, who understand the roots of what teaching really requires and will uh, and are making changes for it. And I think the biggest question facing that community, which by the way, I think Teach for America was part of creating in this country, um, the the biggest question to me is again, do you work inside the system or do you work out of it? So inside the system would be, let's build stronger common core standards. Let's create a process that is more like that Jap Japanese process of every 10 years, we'll revise it and um, we're gonna have other subjects and we're gonna add social emotional goals to our goals. I mean, I can't even imagine this being passed, but yeah. we couldn't have imagined the common core standards being passed. So let's build around this as the foundation of the future infrastructure. Let's reorient teacher education through existing institutions and new ones so that there's a matching curriculum to help teachers learn to teach these standards. Um, and that's all work that's going on. Um, on the other hand, I think there's an exciting 
world to say, you know, the only place we really see strong infrastructure is in places where teachers are allowed to work outside the governance structure. And let's expand those networks of high-performing charter schools and let's create new institutions to serve them, both assessments, uh, teacher education, curriculum, all of these can be created outside. And I think these two theories of change will sort themselves out, will be in conversation, and that's the way we're going to get there. I mean, I have to just highlight this because, I mean, believe it or not, I mean, there, there are whole countries that are really not yet down the path of teacher evaluation and all the accountability stuff, and you can sort of see how they could quickly just go that route. And I, I just think this is such an important point to help the alumni all around the world understand like the idea of taking a more holistic approach this is about the uh, reaching an end of a truly effective teaching force and you know teacher evaluation is one small piece of it but if you put all the, if you put so much energy and attention on that it's going to first of all create a lot of backlash and secondly not really move the needle for kids so first being clear actually standards like what we're aiming at for our kids and and then developing a more comprehensive approach i mean this could actually help other countries not get themselves into the little pickle that we're in in the u.s um and your point about the question about inside the system or outside the system then does seem like the next big central question and and I wonder how you view I mean because there's such a huge increasingly I think vitriolic debate about like should we do this through charter schools or from work you know through working from within and I wonder if you have any brilliant revelations on that front what would be the best paradigm there I mean it is a really tricky dilemma for reasons that you you know I mean yeah yeah um I think I think that we at least have to start by being honest about the trade-offs. And so the trade-off, as I see it, is we built our governance structure in this country for a reason. Like, we have a democratic uh, ideals, and we want to have deliberative um, inclusion of community voice in our public school system. And if we want to continue to value that, we have to think, really hard about what are what we lose when we work outside the system. So I think that means really thinking carefully about what does it look like to serve neighborhoods rather than school serve people who apply. Um, what does it look like to uh, experiment with new governance structures that also incorporate um, communities? And I think that's the specific question that is the number one question for me in this regard. I also think that uh, we also have to be equally honest about the trade-offs working inside the system. The trade-offs working inside the system are that over hundreds of years of creating compulsory education, while we're very early in the American experiment in many ways, like we're only just now, as we all know, in this country trying to educate all people to the same standards. Uh, still, we have not yet been able to create any kind of strong infrastructure within our existing governance structure. So we have to equally acknowledge the trade-off and equally acknowledge the challenge if we are to work within that system. 
Um, another thing I would say is I, I do feel inspired by what the Common Core Standards can do um, from a bottom-up approach. And I hear stories about teachers in this country who push away their district's programs and say, I want, these are not going to help me meet these new standards. I, this curriculum is not going to help me. This assessment is not going to help me. I'm going to design my own instructional system with my colleagues. And they've created learning systems together that are spreading across the country. So I would not want to throw away any hope about inside the system when we're only just getting started with what could happen. What would you say, and feel free to ask questions, obviously. Um, if you had a magic wand, actually, let's say you were the Secretary of Education. Um, I mean, you've already kind of given us a hint about this, but I'm curious what you would do, because it is complex to try to figure out how to go from where we are to where we need to be. So like, what would the top two or three things be that you would do? Oh, all I want to do is just turn that question to you. I feel like I've asked you that question in other contexts. Um, <laughs> uh, this is challenging because the federal government's role in education in this country is so limited that actually um, the, I think that the more uh, powerful levers of change are outside of the federal government and actually the more we turn to the federal government the more we get these like simple button pushing solutions that are like do a teacher quality do, do a teacher evaluation system in every state um, hold your teacher prep institutions accountable um, because that's what you can write into a regulation versus what can a coalition of governors do I see a lot more potential um, but I do think that in, uh, at the federal level, encouraging um, states, acknowledging the state as the key actor has been a positive thing, and we should probably keep on that trajectory. And then giving states the resources to build up the capacity to create the infrastructure that's needed at the state level um, would be number two. Because, uh, you know, as a reporter, when NCL, when No Child Left Behind, the big federal legislation that was very transformative in holding, asking states to hold schools accountable for results was passed, I was a reporter calling up the people who worked at the state departments of education who were responsible for buying the tests, creating the tests, um, doing all this work. And it was, for all the different pieces that they needed to do, it was like one guy in an office, totally underpaid for the task, totally unequipped to tackle this immense challenge. So we've put all the resources in the wrong wrong places. So wh who are, how do we transform? And that's starting to happen in different state states across the country is really thinking about how do we work together as states to pool resources? How do we um, stay the course on what needs to be stayed, but um, pull back on some of the accountability pieces that are just going to cause teachers to give up? Yeah. And, and what would you do locally? Um, I mean, you sort of yeah. gave a clue about this at the end, but I kind of want, I wanted to hear if you had further thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, I think that um, I, one of, by the way, my email, if anyone's Twittering or emailing, I don't have a workable system, so you'll have to, <laughs> okay, go ahead. Uh, uh, 
I think that locally, um, many many districts are adopting the portfolio model and saying, let's get outside um, operators that have a track record of success to operate our schools effectively. And I think what's powerful about that model is that the key uh, to change, the key unit of change is not the individual teacher and not even the individual school. It has to be a network of schools. If you're truly going to build an, a learning system, this infrastructure that I'm talking about, you need to have the unit be multiple schools. So that means, for example, if you're if you're a single school and you're the middle school science teacher, the, the seventh grade science teacher, you don't have another seventh grade science teacher to talk to to help you think about the unique problems of teaching seventh grade science. Um, we could say, you know, well, it's okay because the grade level team at least can talk about the students they're working with and the challenges in their life, and that's important. But there are unique challenges that are posed by teaching life sciences to this specific community. That is a problem better tackled by, um, in collaboration with five other seventh grade uh, life sciences teachers at schools in your neighborhood. And the just as bad as the um, isolation of teachers within schools is the isolation of schools within the network. So I think whether it's an operator or whether it's the district, networks of schools has got to be the unit of change. No, I first. I, I will just say no. Let's let's open it up. But I think this is so profound. Everything you're saying, it's just so. I wish we could have had all of this perspective several years ago, before we went down various paths. But this is why it's so fantastic to be able to get you to share all this with all these folks who still have the chance to start the path. So I, I'm actually super interested in everything you've said about d different countries, but I have a U.S. I'm a U.S. public school parent, so I have a U.S.-based question for you. And so, in addition to having two kids in public school, very progressive public schools, I should say, in New York City, I also was doing a master's in ed program from like 2009 to 2012, right when the Common Core was being developed. And so, while I was in, get in this master's program, we were just learning about the Common Core standards and trying to align, like you know, c coming up with lesson plans to align what we were learning with the Common Core. And even our professors didn't really fully understand the Common Core because it hadn't been fully rolled out. Then, as a parent, all of a sudden, there were, you know, we, th the tests were like based on the Common Core, which I knew hadn't been fully rolled out to teachers because I was in graduate program at the same time. And so what you obviously know happened is that people have, um, have conflated the Common Core and testing um, because suddenly kids were being tested on standards that teachers ha didn't know and ha hadn't taught, and so you know all this. But anyway, um, both my kids' schools are very, like, believe in the Common Core, and I, having learned about it, I see it too. But the, I, I just, like, I don't know where to, go, like, how do we now separate the common core from testing when I agreed, like, I mean, both my kids' schools are very opt-out, like, mm -hmm. friendly schools. And so how do we separate that now and, and make the common core something that people understand and also understand is not about testing and teacher evaluation? 
No, that's that's a great question. Um, I think the one way to to first of all make sense of what's happened in this country and especially in New York State, which is uniquely ahead of other states, which is a reason for hope. But um, to make sense of it is two two theories of change collided about how to improve learning in schools. One, the common core was this theory that I'm sharing about coherence. We need a stake in the ground about what everyone can do and only with high quality standards can we get the rest of the pieces of infrastructure to match. You know, how can teacher education programs be expected to prepare teachers for a uh, hundred different um, ideas about what students should know. And I say 100 because not just by 50 states, but by all the different districts. Um, having one set makes that so, so much easier, not only for um, universities, but also programs like Teach for America. Um, on the other hand, the theory of accountability for teachers is what's behind the teacher evaluation push. And these two collided. We're on an absolute collision course. and. The public doesn't have time to make sense of the differences. So of course, people are conflating these two into one thing. Common Core is about tests, and that's it. Um, I think that the reality is that most states are sticking with the Common Core, which is against all odds. Like, First of all, we have a long history in this country of um, anti-federal federalism. We, we're, um, depending on how you define federalism, anti-centralization pro-local, resisting anything common. So you would, it's a shock from that point of view that we've so many st states have adopted. It's a shock that so many states are sticking with the Common Core or something like it, given this backlash, but they're doing it. And what does that mean? It means that if we continue to invest in development going forward, that people will come along and they can start to see things differently. Actually, one thing that we have seen uh, in other countries and and here as well is the power of the media in all this. Um, I mean, we we were in Mexico and heard from this absolutely extraordinary education reform advocate who has made an amazing impact. I mean, there's so much more to be done in Mexico, but through deep engagement with the media, and I, I actually think it's been an underutilized force here. And I, I think it'd be good to get you to explain what Chalkbeat is and what you're doing there for all the journalists across the Teach for All network who are trying to figure out how to pursue their journalism passion in a way that will move the needle forward in education. Yeah, so I feel very strongly that the media has a place in this equation because we cannot expect, as I, we just spent you know the last 45 minutes discussing, we cannot expect teachers to invent both what the goals should be and how to meet the goals and all the materials to help them meet those goals. On top of that, should we also expect educators to explain to parents what they're doing? I mean, given that we live in a democracy, we have certain assumptions about how that should work, and we assume that there's going to be a press that's going to play a role to help everyone have that, the conversations together in the most informed way. But as this whole um, investment in changing education has happened, at the same time, there's been a massive disinvestment in that press. So it's really not surprising to me that we've had uh, so much misunderstanding at the same time. So um, I see my role in this whole movement as that piece of the infrastructure, is how can we create a space for informed decision making about educational 
change in local communities where the work happens. And in this country, we're doing that through creating a nonprofit news organization called Chalkbeat, um, where we have reporters in local communities who are uh, informed about education, have a background and understanding, but also whose full-time job it is to explain to the public what is going on. It's not educators' full-time job. It's not even policymakers' full-time job. It's our job. Um, and I actually had someone from Teach for All Network come to me and say, I'm in this country, and what would it look like to do journalism elsewhere? So um, it, I, I absolutely believe that's a piece of the puzzle. And just to encourage everyone, because I looked at your website this morning, chalkbeat.org, and it's an awesome website that really lays out sort of how they're going about trying to help people understand the issues in education. So, um, Elizabeth, thank you so much for making the time for this discussion. So honored to be here. Thank you it's for great. having me. Thank you. For more information about Teach for All, visit teachforall.org.